Again, please let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable, at ease. Um, and listen in a meditative way, not so much to remember anything that's said. Um, but if something touches what you already know to be true in your own heart, then let that be a, a reminder. I'm happy to see you at the end of this three-day holiday. Um, I think holidays are great. It's just good when things stop for a while. Um, and I was pleased to discover that there was less traffic on the roads, maybe because of the closing of the bridge and everybody, whatever. But at least for a couple of days, there was actually not much traffic. It was amazing. Stop running around so much. So being in this particular room tonight in the um, residential retreat hall, um, I wanted to speak about the practice and process of meditation itself. Um, and of course, meditation, there are all kinds of meditation. And meditation have different parts. Part of it is sitting still as we did to begin the evening in this beautiful way. And then once we connect with ourselves deeply, then like breathing in and breathing out, the next part of meditation is to stand up and enter the marketplace, enter the world, um, but differently somehow. So let's talk about the sitting still part, part first. Um, when I first went many years ago to study in the forest monastery of, of Ajahn Chah's in Thailand, uh, one of his descriptions of Buddhist practice or meditation practice uh, was an extremely simple one. He said, take a seat halfway between he heaven and earth as if you were a child of this earth. You really belong here on Mother Earth. Take a seat halfway between heaven and earth and stay in your seat and keep your eyes open and your heart open and you will learn everything that you need to about the teachings, the Dharma, the law, the way things are and how to be free. Thomas Merton, Christian mystic, says, the apparent pointlessness of a temple or a monastery is precisely the reason, in the, in the eyes of the world, is exactly what gives it a real reason for existence. In a world of noise, confusion, and conflict, it's necessary that there be places of inner silence and peace, not the peace of mere relaxation, but the peace of inner clarity and love. In a world of tension and breakdown, it is necessary for there to be men and women who seek, seek to integrate their inner lives, not by avoiding anguish and running away from problems, but by facing life in its naked reality and utter ordinariness. So that's kind of a challenge, his statement to us, if we are to live in a wise and free way, to take this seat in the center of our world, in this human form within which we're born, this amazing incarnation, you get this human body, and sit as a Buddha or a Bodhisattva or as the goddess of the earth with your eyes open and your heart open. 
Now, when the Buddha began to teach in India, as the stories are told, he was challenged by various yogis and people who came by. There was a kind of ethos of competition back in those days. And of course, not just in those days. Um, uh, But after um, his long search for enlightenment and uh, under the Bodhi tree, defeating the armies of Mara, he went back to begin to teach the yogis and people that he met. And he was, again, eating food and caring for himself and wearing, you know, robes that were given. And the yogis who challenged him said, we sit on beds of nails, we fast, we do the most amazing austerities, and you've lost the way, dude. I mean, you really don't have it. We're the, we're the real, real practitioners. And, um, you know, we're not going to follow you. Your way is already, you're, you've just relaxed and lost the, lost the power. And the Buddha sat up, as the story goes, and let out what was called his lion's roar. And he said, I have done it all. You name the practice, you name the difficulty. As an ascetic sitting on the banks of the Ganges in the hot sun of the hot season with my eyes staring at the sun, fasting until when I touch my belly, my fingers would touch my backbones. I have done every ascetic practice, and now I have stopped. I've stopped struggling against a single thing. In all the 10 million universes, in all the lifetimes, the heavens and hells, this is not just your kind of day-to-day emotional swings. (laughs) But in the midst of all of this, I now take this seat in the center of the universe and open my eyes to see clearly the way things are and open the great heart of compassion to find freedom. I have done all that and I have found the middle path with which I and you equally can awaken. So he gave his lion's roar in in response. Now many of us could do our form of a lion's roar because so many of us have tried everything. Marriage, divorce, right? Mountain climbing, liposuction, (laughs) consumerism, money, travel, sex, drugs, rock and roll. I mean, there was, on the front page of the Marin Independence Journal some years ago, there was a whole big article about um, licking toads in Marin, you know, because there's a a psychedelic substance secreted by certain toads, and it was a fashion for a while here. Those of you who don't live in Marin can laugh now, right? But we have tried everything. We have, you know it, exercise, therapy, meditation, right? Jog it around. and then we try and do more of it and faster, you know, speed reading and speed everything. It's like Woody Allen said he took a course in speed reading and then he read War and Peace in 20 minutes. <laughs> it's about Russia, he said. <laughs> so there's the whole self-improvement thing that we have chased about for such a long time. You know, striving to make ourselves different, striving to fulfill our desire, trying to be the one, you know, that we imagine we might be. Oh, what a, 
what a weight to try to be imagine, try to be the one you imagined you could be. There, I heard on National Public Radio some time ago that there was a guy standing on the subway platform in Times Square Station in New York, and he would walk up to people and just say, "You're in, you're out, you're out, you're in," you know, and it it really affected them deeply. <laughs> I got in the mail recently, www.enlightenmentcard.com, the Enlightenment Visa card. Not only can you charge things, this is serious, not only can you charge them, but you get enlightenment points, right, while you buy. Yeah, there it is. Anyone wants to come up afterward, I can share it with you. trying to get, to be, to become, to have. This is called samsara in the Sanskrit term. And samsara means the endless cycle of pursuit, of trying to become something of desire and judgment and plans and greeds and hoping for something else. And it's the busyness of the world that we get caught in. What, what is the remedy? Well, one part of the remedy, which I read so often, comes from Joanna Macy, who says that scientists can see more quickly than politicians that there's no technological fix, no magic bullet, no amount of computers or internet or scientific innovation that will save us from population explosion, climate disruption, continuing warfare, racism, hatred, and greed, and wholesale extinctions of plants and animal species. It is simple. We are going to have to change. We are going to have to want different things and seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us in this global consumer economy. What is the remedy? Meditation becomes one part of the remedy of living wisely because it invites you, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, to take a seat on Mother Earth, to take a seat here in the center of the world and stop, simply stop and listen. For me, when I started to teach 30-some years ago, 35 years ago, and when I started also working as a psychologist, psychotherapist. I used to see in working with people compulsion, aggression, confusion, anxiety, greed, laziness, and try to work with those things. People would say, well, these are a problem I have. But over the years, as I listen, as I listen more with the heart than with this mind, I discovered that underneath there's one simple thing. We're afraid. We don't trust or don't remember to trust the capacity of heart to be present for this world as it is. We get lost in the small sense of self, what's sometimes called the body of fear. And our hearts are frightened to let go into life, to touch all things that are here in a respectful way that life gives to us. We're afraid of the intensity of our loneliness, 
or aloneness. We're afraid of emptiness and meaninglessness. We're also afraid of too much aliveness. We're afraid of the measure of sorrows and losses that are given to us. And in some cases, we're afraid of the joys. How many moments when we've not been here, when we're pulled back, frightened to experience the river of change, the mystery of life that is given to us. And it's so mysterious, it is. We're here for a a certain time, not all that long. And in meditation, what we get to do when we stop is open to what in the shamanic language is called the liminal space, the space between the worlds, the space of some fundamental mystery. When Pablo Neruda writes, how did the honeysuckle begin to know its perfume and when did smoke learn to fly? And when did the lemons learn the same catechism as the sun? And why is the scorpion poisonous and the elephant benign? And what does a tortoise meditate on? (laughs) What we know is so little and what we presume is so much. His lines. You know, here we are, praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. We get caught up in those changing woven streams of life. We all have them and they keep changing this great dance. And then we wave our arms and run around and it's still praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. And it's still the mystery from which it all comes. My wife and I and daughter for many years have kept a a family dream journal. And sometimes our dreams will overlap, you know, wake up in the morning and talk about our dreams. And we don't really talk about it much. Here we are going about our business, going out on 101 and, you know, going shopping and making money and so forth. But a good part of your time, probably more time than you spend, you know, doing almost anything quite exclusively, you spend dreaming and sleeping. Isn't that mysterious? It is. And all these wild dreams, and if you don't remember them, they're there anyway. I assure you, they are. I mean, I remember waking up one morning and there was this dream of this huge mountain and a rock quarry and all these machines and people working in there. So this great big quarry I'm in. And then I went to another part of the quarry and there was this elegant older woman dressed up in a ball gown who found the work of all these men quite amusing. That was what she said. This is all quite amusing, you know. And then she wanted to dance with all the people who were in the rock quarry. And of course, I said this to my wife in the morning. And she says, oh, amuse, huh? So this is amuse who's come to take you out of the quarry and dance you somewhere else. Said, thank you for the muse that came. Um, We live in such a mysterious incarnation. And, you know... One of the things that I most hope when I work with people, yes, we can talk about anxiety or getting caught in our fears or our plans or the disappointments that are almost inevitable in human life and the longings and all those need to be honored. But what I really hope is that there's a moment where we can look at each other the way you feel when you lie down on a warm summer's night and look into the sea of stars. Um, And if you're really cool, 
you'll feel that you're on the bottom of the earth looking down into the sea of stars, because you are really, there's no top or bottom, that you're stuck to it by gravity like a big magnet, and you get to look down into this endless sea of stars in which you are taking a ride. You are on this beautiful blue-green planet. And what I hope is somehow that people will have a moment where the sense of the mystery of being incarnate in this human form for a little while, with all its beauty and its sorrow and its amazing potential to awaken, is there in them. I mean, we were out, my wife and I, a couple weeks ago, looking for the Perseid meteor shower. Some of you probably went out to see it. We were standing in our yard. It was 10.30 at night in Woodacre, and there were a bunch of little falling stars, which are um, already incredibly sweet, the silence of a falling star. And then this huge green meteorite went from one part of the horizon all the way across the sky like, you know, Disneyland, some huge firework. So low, fantastic, and all its copper green glory. And we just stood there and said, wow, you know, we really are traveling through space, aren't we? We are. So when you take this seat in the center of the world, our breath, which is really the river of air that moves through our body, the river of thoughts, you know that river, don't you? Oh yeah, it's like that cartoon I talk about all the time in the New Yorker that shows the car going across the Nevada desert, you know, on a long highway and the roadside billboard that says, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? The river of thoughts, the river of feelings, the river of breath, that we are this river. And when you take the seat, you begin to feel the flow of the river of life itself. Rather than being kind of paddling and struggling with it, you feel the river, oh, nobly born. It is in the very process of running away from what is, says Krishnamurti, that fear arises. And when we stop and turn toward what is, awakening, freedom becomes possible. What Jocelyn King, this very wonderful Buddhist sage who followed her husband to Burma, he was a great Buddhist scholar and wrote a bunch of books about Burmese Buddhism. She just went to some little temple and got enlightened and, you know, while her husband was studying. <laughs> and we used to go visit her and she would cook for us, Jocelyn. Um, and she was, you know, doing the dishes after this nice lunch one day for Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg and I. And she said, I just don't understand why people are always grasping at things when the world is quicksand. She said, why grasp at the things, the quicksand of the world when you can rest in the firm ground of emptiness? And then she would wash a few more dishes, you know. <laughs> and what she was talking about was learning to trust that we can rest in the world as it is, in the reality of the present, with the eyes open and the heart open. To take the one seat, this is the Buddha's remedy, take the one seat in the center of the world and stop and learn to be present. And it's a gift to your body, to your lovers, to your garden, to your political party, you know, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> it is, it is. 
Now to do so, to find the grace to be present, which we all have in us, this grace, to open in this way the the middle path that the Buddha teaches requires a kind of balance of yin and yang, the yang being the quality of courage and fearlessness and strength. It's like the Buddha who said, there were the most fearful and fearsome places, you know, charnel grounds in the darkest part of the woods. And I went in the, the new moon when there was no light and the sounds of the animals would come and the wind would rustle and the grave, you know, charnels would... And I said, I will go there and feel the fear and face the fear until I am no longer taken over by such fear. So sometimes to take the one seat really asks this of us, this kind of courage or strength. In the 1980s, I was a reporter at the newspaper in Sarasota, Florida, where apropos to a cub reporter in the summers of Florida, I spent a lot of time covering fires. And what I discovered was that more than, more than an opportunity to practice basic skills, covering fire offered a window into seeing how ordinary people respond in extraordinary circumstances. One woman, I will never forget, I'd parked my car behind the police line. Reporters were supposed to stop it and walk till I found a way in the wooded area where the woods were ablaze. Helicopters flew overhead with the pilot periodically swooping low to fill buckets of water from a pond and drop them on the blaze. The fire already sweeping over hundreds of acres. Firefighters were directing, trying to direct the course of the fire rather than put it out, limiting injuries by instructing people to get out of their homes right now. However, this one woman, Mrs. Garcia, whose house I happened to be standing beside, refused to go. Her husband was at work, her four children at school, and she stood in her yard with a hose in one hand and a kitchen broom in the other. Alone with the fire no more than a few yards away, she sprayed the back of her house and roof with water and clutched the broom in preparation to fight off any flames that came near. A moment later, the fire crossed the back line to her property, approached her house, and then jumped it. Because she had hosed it down, because she had stayed, the flames could not catch on. When she dropped off her kids at school that morning, when she said goodbye to her husband, she had no idea what she would do or what she would be capable of doing that day. From the outside, perhaps on any other day, she looked like a completely ordinary woman, home on Wednesday afternoon, taking care of chores until the kids returned. But on this day, she defied the authorities who told her to leave and stood in the line of a tremendous forest fire. She stood her ground, armed with no more than a hose, and a broom, and saved her house. I think of her often, not because she was a hero on the order of Martin Luther King or Rachel Carlson, but because she was an ordinary woman who was able to find remarkable strength in herself. And if she could do it, doesn't that promise something beautiful to us all? So one part of taking the seat is this courage and strength and fearlessness. The other is the tenderness. What the poet Rilke speaks of as vulnerability, he says, ultimately it's our vulnerability upon which we depend. Because otherwise we can't be real with one another or ourselves. And this yin, this tender heart of compassion, is receptivity and listening and surrender 
the Sufis put it this way, they say, overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the measure of pain that was entrusted, to the magnitude of pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who holds the whole of the world in her heart, you are each endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain and cared, called upon to hold it in compassion and joy instead of self-pity. So to take this seat, we have to open the heart of compassion or we can't bear it. This tenderness and courage at the same time. And then the Buddha says, allow this world to display itself, to open itself before you. The most obvious place the world shows itself is through our own body. This quality of presence, we could call it sacred presence. You sit down and the body says, remember me and all the places of tension and tightness that you carry from prior to the three days vacation. Show themselves, display themselves where it's contracted and restricted and frustrated and so forth. And the point isn't so much to get rid of all that and, you know, fix it. You're not here to kind of do an inner body work because it's endless. You can release some things. The point is to bow to the body and say, yes, this too. Let me make a space of caring attention. And the body begins to regulate and right itself. Just as the breath breathes itself, it knows how to unwind and release. And the pain gets stronger. It doesn't get easier for a time, and it shakes, and it moves, and it throbs, and little by little, if the space of attention is given, the body comes back into its own balance. Eduardo Galeano, wonderful Latin poet, says, the church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertising says body is good business. The body says, I am a fiesta. (laughs) But we forget. We do forget. And so we sit, and the mystery of an embodied life starts to open with its pleasure and its pain. And to open in this way, to take your seat like the Buddha and the Bodhisattva or the goddess of infinite compassion on this halfway between heaven and earth is a demanding and absolutely wonderful thing to do. Joseph Campbell speaks about it both within ourselves and without. He says, the first step to the knowledge of wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly human realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is and that it cannot be changed. Doesn't mean you can't work for justice, but those who think they know how the universe should have been created without pain or sorrow, without death, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it and that no one can do who has not themselves learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. And so we take the seat with all that happens 
within our physical body. And again, this friend, I read this number of times this year, who is dying of prostate cancer, writes, my days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now to my death. So there's something both beautiful and terrible and gracious and powerful about simply stopping, saying, all right, here's your human incarnation with everything your body deals you. And it does, doesn't it? And not just the body, but then the mind. It says in the Buddhist text, who is your friend? Mind is your friend. Who is your enemy? Mind is your enemy. No one can harm you more than your own mind, unguarded. (laughs) Yet no one can help you as much, not even the most loving friend or parent. So we sit and open, take this seat and open to the mystery of the body and bow to it with respect to the feelings and experiences of this physical life and tend to it mindfully, compassionately, with a freedom. And then the mind rushes in, wandering, planning, restless, judging. Lama Kensi Rinpoche, mind creates both samsara and nirvana. Haven't you noticed? (laughs) Yet there's nothing much to it. It's just made of thoughts. Once you recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive you. But that's, you know, not an easy thing to do. We are trained to believe our thoughts. You know, that our thoughts really are important (laughs) and true. That's the worst part, (laughs) actually, that they're true when they're really just an opinion most of the time. (laughs) About a century or two ago, the Pope at that time decided that all the Jews around the Vatican had to leave Rome. Naturally, there was a big uproar from the Jewish community. So the Jews proposed a deal. The Pope would have a religious debate with a member of the community, and if this particular Jew won, then the Jews could stay, and if the Pope won, then the Jews would have to leave. The Jews realized they had to make their best choice, so they picked a middle-aged man named Moshe. Moshe asked for one rule, one addition to the debate. It was to be done in silence. <laughs> Somehow the, de- the, the Pope agreed. It was, it was Moshe's custom to debate without using words. On the day of the great debate, Moshe and the Pope sat opposite each other for a full minute before the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Moshe looked back at him and raised one finger. The Pope waved his fingers in a circle around his head. Moshe pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine. Moshe pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man is too good. The Jews can stay. 
An hour later, the cardinals were all around the Pope asking what had happened. The Pope said, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there was still one God common to both our religions. Then I waved my fingers around to show that God was all around us. He responded by pointing to the ground and showing that God was also right here with us where we sat. I pulled out the wine and wafer to show that God absolves us from our sin. He pulled out an apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? (laughs) Meanwhile, the Jewish community crowded around Moshe. So what happened, they asked. (laughs) Well, said Moshe, first he said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here. (laughs) I told him not one of us was leaving. Then he told me that this whole city would be cleared of Jews. I let him know we were staying right here. (laughs) Yes, and then, asked the crowd. I don't know, said Moshe. He took out his lunch and I took out mine. to do is sit in meditation for a little bit and your mind does that I'm honestly it does I mean my colleague and friend Gil Fronsdale likes this image he said suppose that you were sitting quietly in meditation and the person sitting next to you started to whisper in your ear the stuff your mind was thinking (laughs) first you'd be incredibly annoyed why don't they stop right Then the content of, how dare you say that? You'd be really upset. How could anyone talk to me that way, right? (laughs) Then you'd finally think they're completely insane, right? (laughs) But you do it in yourself. (laughs) So when we take the seat in the world, in the center of the world, what happens is that we see the thought stream of the mind and as my teacher Nisargadot used to say, um, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. We see the mind, but we can rest in the heart of compassion and the space of awareness and say, oh, that's another opinion. That's another story. Thank you for your opinion. I don't like that. I do like this. The thousands of judgments and plans. Thank you for your opinion. You could have about 3% or 5% of your thought and get everything done you needed to think about The rest of it's repeats. It just goes over and over again. It does. Thank you for your opinion. You bow to it. There's the mind. And here we are again. The eyes of the person in front of you, the the night sky, the, you know, the the car that you're driving, um, the, the moment that you're tending to. And there comes in stopping this tremendous capacity to quiet the mind, not because the stream stops, but we step outside of it to open the heart, to rest in the space of awareness and stillness of your own true nature, your Buddha nature. Body, mind, we get our emotions too, like storms they come, all kinds of feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, and on top of them, loneliness and joy and sorrow and happiness and aggression and ambition and apoplexy, you know, and, um, oh, where's my list? <laughs> I have this list I read 
from of 500 feelings, affectionate, ambitious, ambivalent, angry, amused, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, awful. You know, we could go through the A's. The B's, blissful, brokenhearted, or calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, compassionate, concentrated, curious, concerned, delighted, depressed, disheartened, driven, ebullient, fearful, frightened, hateful, honored, humble, hysterical, gluttonous, glad, grateful, grave, greedy, jealous, jovial, joyful, pissed off, (laughs) pleased, prudish. I mean, and there's, there's hundreds of them. And they all come with a story. And then we believe them. It's not that they shouldn't be believed somehow, um, but it's like they come in and they kind of sweep out all the furniture and say, I'm here, we are now angry, you know, or we are now lonely, or whatever. And, and it kind of takes us over. And they can be honored because there's a gift in them. And we need to feel our loneliness and our longing and our love and our connectedness. All of those are terribly important. And our grief in this world because of the sorrows around us that everyone carries and the sorrows in our life. For the Lakota Sioux, grief was valued. It brought a person closer to the gods. When a person had suffered a great loss and was grieving, they were considered most wakan, most holy. Their prayers were believed to be especially powerful. Others would ask them to pray on their behalf. So the point isn't to get rid of our feelings, but to actually know our feelings and sit in their presence in an honorable way. When I was angry at Ajahn Chah's monastery for somebody that was mistreating me, and I went and I complained to him, he said, good, you're angry, great. Why is this good? He said, go to your little hut, close the door and the window. I had this little tiny hut tin roof in the tropics, put on all your robes, and if you're going to be angry, do it right. Sit there and be angry, you know, and I'm sweltering and hot. He said, spend the day, see the stories it tells, the emotions that come, what they did, who's right, who's wrong, and so forth. Learn about it. When you take the seat in the center of the world, you learn about fear and love and longing and despair and joy, compassion, And all of them will show themselves to you. And it's as if you can befriend them. And anger then starts to have a clarity in it. Oh, I know what that's about. And and loneliness and longing, actually, this loneliness turns out to be something that transforms itself into a kind of deep aloneness. That here we are unique in the whole universe of all these trillions of stars and us. And we're both completely connected because we are those stars. You are made of that same substance. And yet there's this odd incarnation of separateness. And you bow to them both. And there comes a deep contentment and well-being, not by pushing away the play, the river of feelings, but becoming the ocean or the sky that can allow these two to be known and met each with a bow to become the space of awareness and kindness, which allows the play of experience like these old statues or images of the Buddha and uh, Prajnaparamita, the 
who represents the goddess of wisdom and the mother of all Buddhas. Basically, it's Buddha and his mom sitting here. You know, she's sort of his backup, I guess, or something like that. But those symbols represent what we who awaken, we who open our eyes and our hearts and take the seat on this earth, can also come to our own nobility, our own centeredness, our own capacity for compassion and fearlessness. Fearlessness doesn't mean you're not going to be afraid. Fearlessness means that you're present for fear and love and longing and all of it together. And the play of life, meditation, is an invitation to sit here and bow and say, oh, this too, this too, whatever it is. Not to judge it, or even let the judgment, oh, that's just a judging mind, thank you for your opinion. You know, remember that little thing, the instructions from Julia Childs, where she wrote, if you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can just pick it up, remember, you know, um, who's going to know, right? (laughs) And it's kind of like that in meditation, You, you sit... And, you know, something happens, you say, oh, that was stupid. Okay, thank you for your opinion, you know, and then you go back and feel your breath or you sense the space of awareness. You see what's present. There's the judging mind. And you touch it with the great heart of kindness. It's not a battle against yourself. And there's not a particular meditative state to get to because you are a river and no state will stay. Okay, I'm meditating, and I have it, and it's a great, open, light-filled, expanded state, and I have to hold on to it. (sighs) You know, but it's tiring after a while to hold on to anything, and then it changes. Okay, it is to bow to this moment to rest in the reality of the present and trust the present more and more deeply. Tell us, Master, said one of the Desert Fathers, what should we do when we see one of the young brothers dozing during the sacred services? Should we pinch them, you know, wake them up? And the old master said, actually, if I see a brother dozing, I would put his head on my knees and let him rest. Hmm. We've been so hard on ourselves for so long. I don't mean in an indulgent way, but I just mean how hard we are on ourselves and what it would mean to treat ourselves with mercy and compassion and forgiveness and kindness that the world and so many parts of the world and so many people in this world also long for. To rest in the space of the one who knows, to take the one seat and practice by saying, yes, this too, and this too, and this too. Wow, and this one too. Hmm, didn't expect that. And this too. That's my instructions I give, or I used to give when I would perform weddings, one of the mantras that I would give to the people as they were getting married, to be able to bow and when you're surprised and say, oh yeah, this too, because you will. Another human being is even more strange than yourself. (laughs) It's true. It is. I mean, that's hard to believe. See how quirky you are. And it's this too. In Zen, it's put this way. If you understand, things are just as they are. And if you don't understand, things are just as they are. (laughs) So the Buddha stopped running and fighting and struggling, stopped fighting against himself and the world, 
he sat and said, let me see this world as it is and find the center in the midst of it all. As Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, when you realize the truth that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourselves in nirvana. Nirvana isn't in the Himalayas or, you know, for some special monastic people who live in faraway monasteries. Nirvana is here and now, open-handed, free, available in any moment when we stop, when we stop struggling against the world and struggling against ourselves and open our eyes and our heart to this mystery of life and say, yes, this too, this is where we are. I mean, it's amazing. Now, when we sit and open, whatever we've run from, whatever is the unfinished business of the heart, the tears we haven't shed, you know, my friend Maladoma Somme, wonderful West African medicine man, says your streets are full of the ungrieved dead in this country. All the things that we haven't tended to, the people who've died in the old age homes and the homeless people and the people who've died in unnecessary wars or all these other things that we've run from in our own life. The unfinished business of the heart will show itself, as will the body. You know, whatever's lost or forgotten or needs attention in the body. The poet Wendell Berry, who writes, I go among trees and sit still, and all my stirrings become quiet, quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. And then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight, and what I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. So there's something mysterious about sitting with our unfinished business or our grief or whatever we've run from. If it's death, then that's what you'll face at some point in meditation. The fact of your death, the inevitability of it, the the end of incarnation, which happens. It's part of the dance. If it's weakness or unworthiness or unrequited longing, it will show itself. For many in spiritual communities, it's life itself. We're afraid of inhabiting our bodies or dancing our dance or our love or money. Whatever it is, I promise you, it will show up. Mara is just waiting for you to close your eyes and say, here we are. You know. So it's not about an ideal. It's not an ideal. There's no idealism in it. It's just the facts, ma'am, you know, or sir. It's the way things are. And it is so refreshing and honorable and honest and centering and liberating to see this is the way things are and to begin to trust life from living in the reality of the present. Because that's what happens, is we start to learn to trust in a deeper and deeper way. And this awakening ask both our courage and a deep surrender to what is. 
And as we touch, this is very important, as we touch the unfinished business, the judgments, the conflict, the various things we've been afraid of from years of running or struggling, very, very important to, to understand this. As we touch these things with awareness and compassion and clarity, we discover that they are not who we really are. The most wonderful thing, that the small sense of self, the body of fear, thinks that's who I am and who I have to be and how I have to fix myself. But when we take this seat, like the Buddha, in the center of all things, no matter what comes, the hindrances and difficulties and conflict and pain and unfinished business, all the fears, that's not who you really are. There comes a ground of goodness, a space of awareness, an unbounded timelessness that knows these as it knows everything that happens. I like to say, you know, when you look in the mirror and you realize that you look older, that you've aged, you know about that. But the weird thing is that you don't feel older, right? And that's because it's only your body that's aged. That's really true. And your body isn't who you are. You rent it. You get it for a while for a particular dance and a particular incarnation. But something in us just knows in an instant and looking in the mirror, who are we really? What is this spirit that was born into this body for a certain time? And as we sit, there comes through all the difficulties a deepening trust in the space of the heart, the space of compassion and awareness itself. This is the way things are. And a profound healing happens. You know, anger dissolves somehow and turns into courage and strength and love. Desire dissolves somehow and turns into this generosity for the world. It's not that we want something. We are the world. We start to trust that what's beautiful wants to open in us when we give it our attention. And I remember years ago working in the Cambodian refugee camps with my teacher Mahagosananda, quite amazing being. And there were, you know, 50 or 100,000 refugees in each camp, these tiny little bamboo huts on a dry, hot rice plain on the border of Cambodia and Thailand. Everybody had a hut that was about four or five feet wide and seven feet long, made of bamboo, a little roof, and then right next to it, the next hut. And each hut had a doorway, a little path, and then next to the door, there was a square of land, maybe one square yard. And in the majority of huts, within a month or two in the camps, people had planted little gardens. And there was this huge pit well at the end of the camp that was dug by a bulldozer, and people would go with a long bamboo stick to carry two buckets of water, as one did in that way, and wait in line for an hour and walk all the way down the bottom of this pit well and get your buckets full of water and bring them back and water a little squash plant and a bean plant and a, and a, a couple of flowers. And it was people whose lives were devastated. Their villages destroyed, temples burned, elders killed. Here they were, you know, still in shock, many of them. 
And yet something in them got the seeds, tilled the earth, planted the beans and the squash, and started their garden again. There is a force of life in us that is unshakable, that is beautiful and sacred. And as we take this seat and let all the difficulties show themselves and remain present for them all, this life force, you could call it love, or any name you want to give to it, begins to open. And we remember who we really are, our Buddha nature, our, our true nature. And discover that our heart is great enough to bring beauty no matter what this life brings to us. Many of us have wandered and sought for so long the right things, the right person, the right way to be, the right way to fix ourselves. Yet it's not something else. It's not a thing. It's not external. It's not an improvement. We are what we seek. It is here already. It is who you are. The world wants your beauty to shine. And when we sit, we step out of the dance of busyness and let what wants to open in us do so. Like the flower petals, it knows how to open. The body knows how to open. The mind knows how to open. The heart knows how to open like some origami that untangles itself, one petal at a time. And we learn to trust this so beautifully and deeply. It becomes like a labor of love to sit in meditation, in the fire and the sweetness and the insight and the peace and the difficulty and the releases. To take the seat in the middle of all things, not about improving it. The Tao says, do you want to improve the world? I don't think it can be done. Doesn't mean we don't care for things or work to stop injustice and pain for others. But the world, this is the, this is the world of birth and death and praise and blame and gain and loss and joy and sorrow. Do you think you can improve this world? Fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill. Keep sharpening your knife and it will blunt. Chase after security and property and your heart will never open. Care about people's approval and you will be their prisoner. Sit still. Then get up and do your work with love. Step back without attachment. The true path to serenity. When you are content to simply be yourself and don't compare yourself or compete, Everyone will respect you, and the Tao will fulfill itself. I mean, really, what are we going to do? I remember one day I was sitting in India with this old guru and teacher of mine, Sri Nisargadat, wonderful old wise man in Bombay. And he was giving teachings on liberation, quite extraordinary teachings. And a young man came up to the loft where we were all sitting, and he asked one or two questions, Maharaj, this or that, and got his answer. And then he left at lunchtime. He'd been there for just an hour or something, and he never came back. And so somebody raised their hand and said, Maharaj, what happens to somebody like that, a kind of spiritual dilettante? You know, they come in, they find the guru, they ask a question or two, they get a little answer, you know, and then they go away. Is there, is there any hope for them? 
you know, because we were the serious ones who were there for a long time and stuff like that. And Maharaj just laughed. He said, it's too late for him too, you know. He said, once you start, you know, um, it means that that place in us that remembers who we really are, that knows that we're not this body or these thoughts and opinions, that knows who we really are, has started to wake up and you can't put it back to sleep again completely. So I'm sorry to tell you, it's too late. (laughs) And you are waking up, so you might as well do it right, you know, gloriously with compassion and courage and freedom that is your birthright. Let's sit for a moment. As you sit, relax and let yourself be the space of awareness that hears these words, that feels the sensations of body and breath, the space through which thoughts and feelings arise and pass like clouds. Be the space of great awareness and great compassion to touch whatever arises with the heart of tenderness and the freedom of a Buddha. Just one or two more brief moments. Um, I will be, over the the course of the next three or four weeks, I'll be leading a number of retreats and on retreat and so forth. 
So there'll be several other teachers coming. I think next week is Norman Fisher. I'm not certain, but I believe so. Um, wonderful teacher and others. Um, I thank you again for your generosity and your kind attention, your care and being here. Um, thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.